0: The Tiger Tamer Who Went to See from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com.
1: Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again.
0: This episode is brought to you by Seed. Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic is a broad-spectrum probiotic and prebiotic formulated with 24 scientifically validated strains for whole-body benefits, engineered for maximum
2: delivery to your colon, helping to support a healthy heart, maintain optimum cholesterol balance and lipid metabolism, as well as reinforce an optimal gut-skin access to promote clear skin. Visit seed.com slash Spotify and use code SPOTIFY25 to get 25%
0: off your first month.
2: History has been totally sanitised by the French historians. They, they don't talk about these massacres at all, except for saying, you know, oh, a few anti-revolutionaries, counter-revolutionaries were got rid of. But it was practically a genocide in the west of France.
0: That was Stephen Clarke on the French Revolution. In today's episode, we're going to be speaking to the writer Stephen Clarke, who's made his name writing humorous books about France, including A Thousand Years of Annoying the French. His latest book, released just a few days ago, takes a sideways look at the French Revolution. And this was the subject of his conversation with our staff writer, Ellie Cawthorn.
3: So I'm joined by Stephen Clark today, who's the author of a myth-busting new account of the French Revolution. So, of course, the revolution is a classic in the history textbooks. But what you suggest, Stephen, is that a lot of what we think we know isn't actually correct. I wonder whether you could just start by running us through some of the biggest misconceptions people have about the French Revolution.
2: Sure, yes. Well, um, the first one is that there is this idea that suddenly, um, on the 14th of July 1789, the prisons rose up and very democratically attacked this horrific um, political prison called uh, the Bastille, a castle on the edge of Paris, uh, smashed down its walls, freed the prisoners, and then thereafter, very quickly, the, the despotic tyrannical King Louis XVI and his madly overspending wife Marie Antoinette were tried, uh, guillotined, a whole bunch of uh, aristocrats were guillotined, and rather neatly, suddenly we had liberté, égalité, and fraternité, and, uh, which gives us the French Republic as we know it today. That's what they like us to think, and that's the kind of image they project every 14th of July, whereas in fact, almost all of that is completely false. When you go back to, as I did, to the parliamentary archives, to the the actual historical accounts of what happened before the Bastille was attacked and all that, you see that it was totally, totally wrong. Uh, And this is what I've done in the book, is point out what was really going on, which in fact is a lot more interesting um, and uh, in many ways a lot more sort of heroic and revolutionary. um, Because for, for a start, the Bastille was a very unpleasant prison however in 1780 in july 1789 there were only i think it was seven prisoners there um and all of those none of them were political and all of them were put back in prison by the revolutionaries anyway what the parisians wanted was gunpowder because they'd already got a load of muskets and they wanted gunpowder um in order to have an uprising uh it was they were food riots The, the price of bread had gone up people were poor they had genuine Reasons to complain. However, the reality was, and this is what I describe in the book, that out in Versailles, where the king's palace was, a a new democratic parliament had already begun working. the The king had summoned a rather a very undemocratic setup with the aristocrats, the clergy, and uh, what they called the Third Estate, um, which was the with the commoners. He'd summoned them, but they'd. The, the commoners had rebelled against that and said, No, we want a democratic party with one member, one vote, each vote having the same weight. And the, with the king's cooperation, they'd force that through. So France, now, as of May 1789, had a fairly democratic um, government which was trying to put through the new democratic tax laws. The French. Ordinary French people were crippled with taxes. They, they, I mean, they were paying like 50% of everything they earned in tax to these aristocrats who did nothing. They were just landowners. And the king had been trying to change that for years and had, unsuccessfully because the aristoc- aristocrats had stopped him. And now, suddenly, in May 1799, 1789, all this was going ahead. There were genuine reforms led by these incredibly um, sort of courageous and principled French democrats. Whom nobody speaks about now, um, they were actually reforming the country, and, and these Parisians rioting were seen as an unfortunate um, sort of side issue um, that needed to be cured, and that you know food issues needed to be addressed, the price of bread and everything. but you know democratic reform was going on, and what people wanted was a constitutional monarchy, a british style monarchy where, where the king was subject to parliament, and he had rather grudgingly accepted that. So when the Bastille was attacked, in fact, d- democracy was already happening, not in Paris, but out in Versailles, with the king, and no one wanted to execute the king. And, and people just don't admit this for some reason. They don't want to admit this.
3: So the way that we view the French Revolution is very much uh, shaped by hindsight and the knowledge of what came after.
2: Yes, and by a sort of clean-up act, because uh, what came afterwards was uh, for about almost three years this new democracy was going ahead. They were, try- they were reforming things. They were writing a new constitution. Now, being French, they were doing a lot of talking and not a great deal of action. Um, and some of the politicians, when you read the parliamentary archives, which are wonderfully detailed, um, you see that they, they talked almost every, all day, every day, 365 days a year. No, they were working very hard. But um, they were pontificating a lot. And unfortunately what was happening was that the these aristocrats who still had a measure of power in parliament um were blocking the most um, radical ref- reforms, especially as regarding to uh, their, the taxes they were receiving and being dispossessed of their property. They wanted to be paid the full price for their property, whereas the king, for example, gave up some of his palaces without asking for the full price, um, you know, gave them to the nations. Uh, um, and aristocrats were blocking that. So things were going rather slowly. And um, it wasn't until 1792 when the people who are now famous, like uh, Robespierre and uh, Danton, uh, who were in fact just the mo- the loudest and the most, um attention-seeking and and the most radically anti-monarchist, and they were calling for blood, and it was very populist. They were saying a lot uh, like some like extreme French parties do now, both left and right. They say, you know, get on the barricades, uh, you know, protest and we're with you, we're with you. And that's what Robespierre and Danton were doing. And they they whipped up the Prisian crowds into a frenzy. And things, I mean, I'm simplifying slightly, obviously, but things um, got out of hand and people got impatient. And in 1792, the guillotining started and um, there was a complete sort of uh, purge of moderates, um, and th- that was when Louis the Sixteenth got executed and Marie Antoinette got executed and lots of other people. Um, but and what they cover up is the fact that it then descended into a horrific civil war with awful massacres, which I describe in great gory detail. Fran- you know, French person on French person. Um, so history has been totally sanitised by The French historians, they they don't talk about these massacres at all, except for saying, you know, oh, a few anti-revolutionaries, counter-revolutionaries were got rid of. But it was practically a genocide in the West of France.
0: This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com extra.
1: That's ZipRecruiter.com extra. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card
0: So you need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. And it needs to say, I'm a thoughtful person, and I appreciate you, and I know exactly what you like, all at the same time. Well, Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life, like the pickleballer the jazz fan or the pasta lover from 90s nostalgia and mixology to reality tv and gaming there's something for everyone on etsy whether it's a birthday an anniversary a holiday or even just a day to say thank you gift mode on etsy has you covered need to find the perfect gift don't panic try gift mode on etsy now
3: Picking up your point about the massacres there, I think we hear a lot about the French Revolution in terms of Louis and Marie Antoinette and, as you say, the the top revolutionaries, the ones that shouted the loudest. But we don't hear so much, like you say, about how it affected everyday people. I wonder whether you could give us a sense of what it might have been like to be an ordinary person living through this time in France.
2: Yes, well, the experiences would have been very different. I mean, in Paris, there were a lot of uh, very poor workers, uh, disenfranchised workers, because um, you, in order to vote, a lot, bit like in Britain at the time, you had to pay a certain amount of tax, and lots of them didn't pay tax. Servants weren't allowed to vote either. Now they were, A um, lot of those were, you know, really subject to the price of bread. It really, the price of bread was a vital uh, part of the economy. And when bread prices went up, people, you know, were close to starvation. Um, So for long periods when there were bad harvests or um, bad weather, which there often was during that period, um, people uh, came close to starvation, which is why there were riots. Now, um, and at that point, traditionally, they turned to the king as a sort of benefactor. And they asked for, um, you know, relief, they asked for um, aid. And they usually got it. And and what the king uh, tried to do, and the parliament, obviously, at the same time now, was um, get together grain stocks, which they would then distribute to the the poor. Um, and this worked for a while. And people, you know, were quite... Uh, happy with that, and and uh, they saw it as the natural part of the of government. Um, but it's true that uh, out in the country, for example, where you are further away from all this aid and from these grain stocks, um, I, I found a wonderful book by a British um, agriculturist called Arthur Young, who travelled around France at this time, and he he described seeing these poor, starving people out there. He said he he's, he walked for a long time with a woman. A, far, a peasant woman and they were talking and he said she looked as if she was 70 and he asked her age uh, and she said she was 27 and she described um, the hard work she had to do to, to make a pittance of a living. And what he's saying is um, he doesn't understand that there's all this uncultivated land and these absentee landowners and that how, how is it that such a, a, a potentially fertile country as France um, should be so desolate, you know. Um, so you had the poor people who really were suffering. You had the rich aristocrats who even right up until... 1792, the ones who didn't run away into exile, some of them were living fairly comfortably out in their chateaus, a life of absurd privilege, because all they did was take taxes and revenues from their landowners. And um, they were you know, the really archetypal, uncaring aristocrats who, who uh, even, they even got the, their tenants to work free, for example, repairing the roads and, and things like that on their estates. Then you had the whole merchant classes who were trying to um, make France work because just before the revolution, the economy had actually begin, begun to boom, um, but this killed it off. So um, a lot of the bourgeois classes turned into um, political, uh, not agitators exactly, but activists uh, pushing for harder reform and, and trying to get power away from the aristocrats. And then you you had this new generation of uh, revolutionary administrators who gradually um, mutated into these sort of Stalinist type political commissars who would be parachuted into these towns and would oversee the revolution and as things went on through 1792 and into the the terror of uh, of that period which lasted up to uh, almost up to 1795 what you'd get would be the, these bunches of um You know, revolutionaries who would go around, um, you know, if anyone, you could, you could denounce your neighbor, if your neighbor said anything against the revolution, you could denounce them and they would get executed. You know, if you were, if you were tried for tyranny, there were two verdicts, innocent or execution. Um, So people really were living through um, terror.
3: You mentioned earlier Louis the Sixteenth and um, Marie Antoinette, and these are, of course, two characters which really have not come off well in the history books. Is that unfair? Were they really as horrendous as legend would have us believe?
2: Well, it's true that Marie Antoinette uh, she didn't say "Let them eat cake." Uh, that that's um that's a myth, but almost certainly I, I do examine the reasons for the myth. Um, but you know. Let them eat cake was a really good clever piece of fake news because um, the lack of bread, as I said, was a real really um, key uh, sign that the economy was going badly. so for someone to say, "Let them eat cake w- was horrendously cruel um, so if people when people believe that about her. Um, it really was a very effective piece of propaganda, but she was, she did overspend terribly. She, she arrived as a sort of, um, she was very young, you know, when she arrived, she was only 14 when she, she married and she was, you know, a prepubescent, uh, princess. And, um, at first people loved her and she was sort of, you know, she gave to charity and all that sort of thing. But after that, very quickly, um, she just she was buying earrings that would cost about the the price of um, I, I calculated the price of one pair of her earrings in something like a million loaves of bread, and she would borrow money, and um, you know her her reputation went down so badly and so quickly that. Um, I found all these pornographic uh, plays and sketches that people were writing about her, and believing it, you know how she was sleeping with her husband's brother or um, other lovers, um, incest, and people would believe anything about her. And she really dragged the monarchy down. And at one point, uh, some of Louis the Sixteenth's allies were saying, "You know, send her back to Austria, and then then you'll be able to stay on," because they actually people actually genuinely liked um, Louis the Sixteenth. He was. As kings go, as French kings, you know, absolute monarchs go, he was quite a benevolent fellow. He did, throughout his whole career, he did uh, try his best to ease the lot of uh, the poor Parisians. Now, he was living a, a wonderfully lavish lifestyle at the same time, so it was a bit hypocritical. But he, he engaged um, a Swiss economist called Jacques Necker, who tried to push through really radical tax reform to make aristocrats pay tax for a start and also to um, enable uh, poor people to work um and earn a decent living and actually have you know prospects for themselves and their children and everything um and people actually quite liked him you know on on the seventh on the fourteenth of july seventeen ninety the first anniversary of Bastille Day, and there was a huge celebration in Paris and Louis Sixteenth was the guest of honour and the massed crowds of politicians and soldiers and ordinary spectators swore an oath of allegiance to him. You know, there was no question of cutting his head off at all at first. They, they liked him and it was only when, you know, these reforms couldn't get through because they were blocked that uh, populists whipped up opinion against him.
3: So who were some of the other characters that you found most fascinating to research?
2: Well, one of them was a, the first president of France. And one of the fascinating things I found was that at first, when it was created, the Assemblée Nationale, which is still the name of the French Parliament today, their, first, their, their presidents, they would only be presidents for about two weeks and then they would swap. It's wonderful. They, uh, they were just chairmen of debates. The first president and he was also later the first mayor of Paris, a fellow called uh, Jean-Sylvain Bailly. I'd never heard of him. Um, but when you read what he wrote and what he said, he was a really principled Democrat. He was keeping everyone, all the extremes in check. Uh, he, was say, he was saying to, um, to the more radical revolutionaries, you know, no, we have to, uh, let's consult the king. The king is not going to tell us what to do. But, you know, according to this new com um constitution that we're writing everyone has to be consulted everyone has to agree and he was he was pushing laws very slowly through but using really democratic principled um methods um so actually so it came to it no surprise when later on he was sort of framed uh for a, a, a crime and was um guillotined you know uh all, all the moderates the people like him were, were guillotined later on um he was a fascinating fellow, just for, you know, he was rather boring when he spoke, but he just, he wanted to get things done honestly, you know. No. Well, this fellow Necker as well, this, this Swiss economist, I'd never heard of him. Um, he, again, really boring, really fascinated by um, writing out his accounts and, and um, hugely lengthy, detailed uh, papers on what he intended to do, which I'm sure put half the politicians to sleep, Um you know but a really principled man his his wife and he founded a, a hospital in um paris that is um even is still open today and they founded it on to help the poor he also reformed the prison system because he said that um you know being in prison was punishment enough and so having bad conditions was an extra punishment and sh- shouldn't be allowed you know you had these philanthropists working with the king Um, and who were actually trying to do good. Um, But they were, you know, Necker was Swiss, so he he just he managed to escape. Principled, democratically minded people working for peaceful reform, uh, evolution, not revolution. And um, if they'd been allowed to go ahead, it would have saved hundreds of thousands of French lives in in the massacres that followed over the the following century, because the revolution actually, it, you know, until it, it lasted almost until eighteen seventy. You know, in eighteen seventy, um, there was almost another monarchy. And, uh, there was such chaos created by the the conditions of the the terror and the guillotinings and the rivalries that that, uh, that, that uh, arose that um, that the revolution went on for for that long.
3: Um so, of course, the full title of your book is The Revolution and What Went Wrong. Yeah. We've kind of just been discussing this, but I wonder, is that what you see as the main thing that went wrong in the revolution, the purging of moderates?
2: Yes, the the descent into violence, the descent into populism. You know, one of the most famous... Um, uh, revolutionaries, um, Danton, he has a um, a statue at uh, Odion in in Paris, at the crossroads in Paris now, where he says that um, uh, bread and education are the greatest gifts that a nation can give to its people. Okay, which is a wonderful quote to have on your statue. But what they don't quote is is all the speeches where he said, um, you know, let's have some blood. Uh, And uh, the speeches where he was um, condoning prison massacres where people just Uh, mobs would go into prison uh, prisons uh massacre aristocrats but also um some of them wandered into um, a women's prison raped loads of women massacred uh some of the prostitutes uh, and claimed it as a revolutionary act and and people uh in in this was by this time this was during the terror the the robespierre and co and uh Danton were condoning this, and, and knowing that doesn't get quoted these days. You know, and one of the most famous other um, one of the other most famous uh, revolutionaries uh, is uh, Marat, the fellow who famously died in his bath. You know, who stabbed in his bath. Um, one of the most bloodthirsty people you can imagine. He was he was calling for blood and guts the whole time, and he was pasting this on the walls of Paris uh, every day. And that's what went wrong: is the, the sheer violence that they they went. I don't understand it. You know the the massacres I talk about. You know they were they were drowning. For example, thousands of people in in the town of Nantes in Brittany, which today is a nice sort of picturesque, quiet place. There was a huge prison there, and and I think it's about nine thousand people were thrown in the river or hacked to death uh they used to do things they they called it a revolutionary wedding where they would take a man and a woman strip them naked tie them together and throw them in the river they thought it was a big joke a revolutionary death you you read these stories you can't imagine how um the french ever got together as a nation again there was just such awful civil war you know, you know the Brit- the english civil war there were no massacres like this you know so um yeah i think that's That explains the divisions in France the rest of the day. That explains why, um, for example, in the Second World War, suddenly you had, you know, resistance people on one side and then Vichy on the other. The country just split down the middle. You know, that's what it, it can do that because it goes right back to the revolution.
3: Um, considering all this horrific bloodshed, civil war, massacres, if we compared France before the revolution and France after the re- revolution... Um, what differences would we see? How would the two compare?
2: Well, this is something I go into at the end, is that what did the the first revolution, if you want to call it that, the, the, the 1789, what did it actually achieve? And in the short term, um, there was, at the end of it, there was a measure of democracy in that more people had the vote. Um Taxes were lower because either they'd been abolished or people didn't bother to pay them or the, their landowners, their, te- their landlords had uh, gone into exile and, or been killed. So in that way, they were better off. Um, industry had come to almost a complete halt um, because most of the, the rich um, you know, industrialists had also been noble, so they'd, they'd mostly left. Um, the country, lots of the chateaus had been sold off um, but all the money had gone to the rich bourgeois people who would stepped into the aristocrat shoes, um, and they'd got rich, um, by, by buying these wonderful, um, chateaus for almost nothing. Um, so for your average poor person, um, not a great deal had, cho- had changed. And I, I go into the, the, the element, the, the, the sexism of it all. Women had not got the vote. Um, they were, you know, the, they they still had almost no rights whatsoever right through the 19th century um because of it so in the first instance there wasn't a great deal of change slavery was briefly abolished but then then made legal again and all that happened was that um the, the first revolution created this vacuum into which napoleon stepped you know this young general just walked in there there was a power vacuum he took over the country became a dictator got himself named uh, emperor, and suddenly, um, you know, just less than a decade after the revolution, France was now an em- it wasn't a monarchy anymore, but it was an empire with an emperor with a crown uh, on the throne. You know, it didn't achieve a, a great deal at first.
3: So I wonder, maybe perhaps in conclusion, whether you could sum up how we should look back on the revolution.
2: I think, as with all history, the best thing to do is to go back and see what people were actually saying at the time. This is why I went back to the parliamentary archives, to autobiographies. Many of the autobiographies were self-defense, obviously. There were loads of aristocrats and, uh, you know, royal servants writing. But you, when you go back and you see what was actually being said and done, you get a much clearer picture of what happened. And with with the French Revolution, um, what you see at first is this Democratization process that suddenly went horrifically and violently wrong. Now it took them a century to pull themselves together and get something much more democratic going. So now you know now they're at the Fifth Republic. It means they've had five goes at doing it. So it, looking back, I would say um, the revolution is French Revolution is a lot less simple, um, cut and dried. If that's not a bad pun, than than what's presented to us. Um, and a lot more violent. It started out much more peaceful than people would imagine, and it, it ended up much, much more violent.
0: That was Stephen Clarke. The French Revolution and What Went Wrong is out now, published by Century. And if this has whetted your appetite for French history, then you may well be interested in our Bio Tapestry Day, taking place in Oxford on the 17th of June. Head to historyextra.com forward slash events for more details on that. And that is all for today's episode. Thanks for listening and do look out for our next episode, which will be released on Thursday.
3: Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions.